we all fall into that. I'll open Instagram and see like so-and-so got mentioned by so-and-so cool blog. And subconsciously what that triggers in me is, oh, that means that I won't get that because they got that. And that is scarcity and it is a myth. And it's definitely something that women are taught to believe. Like there's only so many men, there's only so many jobs, there's only so much happiness. There's only so much love available on earth. And that applies to any industry and any career. It's time for Backstage Chats with Women in Music, where the stories and voices of female music makers inspire women like you to be dreamers, to be rule breakers, and to unleash your inner rock star. Podcasting from Austin, Texas, the live music capital of the world, here's your host, Fia Wood. Born Susanna Powell, singer-songwriter Boyfriend, is a Nashville native who is spreading her storytelling wings in New Orleans as the original rap cabaret artist. Her love of musical theater translates to a burlesque-style live show complete with vintage lingerie, big-ass hair rollers, and the occasional food fight. Go to BackstageChats.com and access the show notes for Boyfriend's music, social media links, and performance videos. We'd like to thank our friends at the Ritz-Carlton New Orleans for providing a top-notch interview space. Now, let's start the chat. And welcome to Backstage Chats with Women in Music. I'm your host, Thea Wood, and it's a beautiful day in the Big Easy, and I'm thrilled to be with our first rap guest. Well, rap cabaret guest. <laughs> She's the rapid-fire voice of feminism, the school teacher your parents never warned you about, and the alternative generation's version of the church lady. Welcome, boyfriend. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I love that intro. <laughs> Well, good. I'm glad that you do. It is such a delight to have you here. Thank you for joining me on a Sunday, no less. Indeed. It's Indeed. reverent. Rever- <laughs> it is reverent. We're paying reverence to music, uh, especially this weekend because it is New Orleans Jazz Fest, Heritage Jazz Festival. And um, you've been quite busy this weekend. Yeah, I'm I'm tired. <laughs> but it's the 50th anniversary, and the fact that I'm getting to participate in that is giving me an extra boost of energy. And the kombucha you provided me, so thank you. <laughs> oh, you're so welcome. I'm so glad you're liking it. You know, I really wanted to start off with the group of questions that we ask everybody who comes on to our show, and it's called The Shakedown. Are you ready for The Shakedown? I'm ready. <laughs> okay, so who was your first concert? That would be the Lilith Fair, so it included a lot of people. Indigo Girls... Sarah McLaughlin, um, who else would have been at that one? Maybe Alanis Morissette, oh. although it felt like my first concert a couple days ago when I got to be side stage for her at Gentilly and was belting my lungs out. Might as well have been my first because every concert before that doesn't matter. <laughs> wow. Well, I bet that was pretty exciting. Did you actually get to meet Alanis? At- I, I didn't, no. Well, Not this time around. okay. Our souls convened. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. What was the first album you bought with your own money? A little embarrassed to say it was Blink-182, Take Off Your Pants and Jacket. I probably just bought it because of the title and I wanted to be rebellious. I hope you liked it. (laughs) I did. I did have a stage diving era, for sure. There was some time there. That was the goal. (laughs) Good for you. I had that too. Um, Next question. Which artist or band is in heavy rotation on your playlist right now? Well, I actually have a playlist called Girl Crush and it's all ladies making music right now, not back in the past, but in this moment, and they might not have a ton of followers, and maybe I've worked with them, or maybe I know them, or know someone who wrote the song, but I really try to listen to the music of my peers, because, like, we're the ones coming up together, Uh, so that's what I've been listening to. I've been listening to Banafi. She's an Australian artist. Um, She also produces, which is rare. Uh, Ceci G is another artist. It's a vocalist and a producer. 
um, super rad. Um, oh, Harina Del Marco. Those are the those are my girl, my three girls I've been listening to a lot lately. Awesome. And is that publicly available? Can people access your playlist? Yes, yes, totally. Please do. Is it on Spotify? Yeah, it's on Spotify. Girl Crush. Girl Crush. You guys heard it first here. Uh, next question. Which woman has had the most influence on your career? That'd be my grandmother, uh, Mama Joy. She is no longer with us and she never even knew about all of this, which is probably good because she's very conservative and religious. But I do think that if she could have gotten over some of the content of what I'm saying, she would have loved it because she loves big shows. And she was always showing me all the musicals and she was a pageant queen. Miss Georgia Peach, I think that might've been like a county title, but (laughs) the part that got through to my head was that she was Miss Georgia Peach, even if it was locally. Um, So she would show me Esther Williams and Elizabeth Taylor and all the Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals. And that is still my main influence to this day is that jazz hand showmanship and the soundstage musicals of the fifties and sixties that I'm really trying to emulate. Well, and anybody who goes to your show is going to see that immediately. I hope so. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Next question. Um, If you could have dinner with any woman dead or alive, who would it be? Flannery O'Connor. Um, she, for those of you who don't know who aren't English majors like I was, um, she is a Southern Gothic writer who lived in Georgia. Uh, that's where my grandmother lived as well, rural Georgia. Um, and she, she just seems like she was connected to something vibrating very deep. And I would love to pick her brain and talk to her and her stories, uh, her, her collection of short stories that I read probably like junior high were the first thing that really just blew my mind and got me hooked to, to the art of storytelling and, and complicated storytelling where you're not necessarily rooting for the person who's narrating. You're not necessarily rooting for the main character. Um, and she also trained peacocks. <laughs> <laughs> and she's the only person I think on record that was able to teach a chicken to walk backwards. So there's, there'd be a lot to talk about there. There would be a lot to talk about. Well, here's our last question. What is one life goal you'd like to accomplish before climbing that golden stairway to heaven? (laughs) Or sliding down the water slide to hell. (laughs) (laughs) Whichever sounds more fun. (laughs) To be honest, uh, my goal right now that I'm holding on to is to let go of goals. If you can wrap your head around that. Um, Yeah, to, to release goals out into the wild blue yonder to fly away like a flock of geese and just be where I'm at and not worry so much about this like transparent carrot dangling on a stick out there. Always. The moment living in the moment. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Excellent. Well, I have to tell you, um, I have moving on from the shakedown by the way. And thank you so much. Shake, shake, shake. Shake, shake, shake. Um, you know, I have a hard time classifying your music because of course rap is the first thing that people are going to think because it's like I said before, rapid fire storytelling. And uh, But I hear pop, I hear funk, I hear some rock in there. And, um, you know, it, it, so it's hard to say it's distinctive with the exception that the female voice and message is so strong to what you would hear in, in most music, obviously, especially male-written music. And um, in particular, uh, Beauty is Pain talks about bleaching your teeth and waxing your legs and counting carbs in your sleep and all these things that, you know, 
a man is not going to put out there. <laughs> so I wanted to know, why is it important to you to address these in song? You know, it might seem like old hat to some people and not terribly revolutionary, especially some of my peers who are, you know, the conversations they're having are like, what is your preferred pronoun? And like, there may be a little further along in the radical community. But the world that I grew up in, which was very conservative and very Southern, something like shaving your armpits is actually quite radical and like doing that on stage and talking about it and allowing yourself to have body hair. And so I'm still very interested in unpacking these things that women have to do to be deemed presentable. Um, We're all a little more awake now and it's ironically, we're already being uh, marketed to by the idea that we don't need to be beautiful. (laughs) You know, like the, the cosmetics and beauty industry has already caught on to the sort of awakening of like the millennial age of sort of rejecting some of that oppressive, um, messaging but but even still like it is it is there it is so there and it's still worth talking about and still worth singing about because even if you're doing it with awareness um you're still doing it you know like and I'm not even ever meaning to imply that you shouldn't wear lipstick or that you shouldn't shave your legs but do it with awareness and do it for you um don't do it out of obligation and hell even if you're shaving your legs because your boyfriend likes that Make it your choice, you know? And I know that some of my friends, they feel gross in their natural state. If they look down at their legs and they see hair, they're grossed out. And, like, that is how deep we've been indoctrinated, that we're disgusted by our own natural bodies. And that's worth talking about. (laughs) That is worth talking about. And like you said, it's, it's not a judgment on you, on what you do or don't do. It's your thought process behind it and how are you viewing yourself. Like, for me, lipstick is my armor. I love wearing lipstick. It makes me feel strong and powerful, but I'm not doing it because somebody else is telling me to do it or that that defines my beauty. Did you know, so tangent, (laughs) that some of the original use of lipstick was for the suffrage movement was because they were like, you know what? We're not going to get these men to listen to us (laughs) unless we like kind of peacock out a little bit to bring back to Flannery. And so they started uh, handing lipstick out to the suffragettes. Like, because back then to Rouge was only like, you know, women of the night, (laughs) not these, you know, women who are out there in the streets protesting. And so then they started doing it. And now you can't imagine any woman not understanding the concept of lipstick, but it's a radical thing. It's, uh, it can be used for so many different ways. And I love it. That's why I have giant foam props that look like lipstick. I I certainly don't hate it, but I have a complicated relationship with it for sure. (laughs) Well, um, yes, and we're going to talk a little bit about your live show here in a second. But I did want to talk about your new single that came out called Teacher, which is very exciting. It's in collaboration with Joseph Shirley, who's from L.A. And, you know, after listening to the lyrics, and I encourage everybody to go to our show notes and uh, click on the links and listen to the music and buy it and all that good stuff. But, um, you know, it really... It reminded me of the debates that are happening on social media where everybody is trying to school everybody on what to think about religion and politics and science and everything under the sun. And I'm wondering, was that kind of the motive behind writing teacher? Because I know it's not about teaching kids in school. Yeah, like, y'all, this is a podcast that you can't see, but I was literally, like, waving my arms up and down while she was talking because I was like, she gets it. Yes, I don't even have to answer the question. Yes, 
<laughs> oh my gosh, yes. that's awesome. Okay. You, you yeah. nailed yeah, you nailed it. I mean, you see it every day and and it's creating all this crazy conflict and you know, who who are we to teach everybody else? It's just opinions are great, but you know, everybody's got one. And um it really hit home for me. So, I'm very excited for other people to listen to teacher. Yeah, I hope that they have as keen of an ear as, as you do. I, I do think it's going to be easy to just be like, oh, she used to be a teacher, and so that's what the song is about. But um, I, I try to always make my songs, A, listenable, <laughs> so that they're fun and you want to listen to them, and then B, uh, challenging, so that if you're really listening to the lyrics, you might be like nodding your head, but eventually you'll kind of scratch your head. Um, so I hope that that comes through in this, in this one as well, because a lot of times what I'll do is, um, what I call like the, the Colbert method where I become the thing that I'm trying to critique yes. versus the John Stewart, which is like pointing at and talking about the things that you're critiquing. But in this song, I do a little bit of both because I was afraid that by just repeating, I'll be your teacher, I'll be your teacher over and over again. It might, people might think I really mean the things that I'm saying in the verse. Like, don't you say that? Don't you post that? Don't you question why? Like, it's like, well, it's a little risky if someone thinking I'm actually telling them what to do. And so I wanted to make it really easy and drive it home. So I have a quick little eight bar verse where I slip into my John Stewart <laughs> and I say what I really mean. I say, if, if, if we are all teachers, there will be no students. Um, so I hope, I hope people get it. <laughs> I think they will. And I think it's a fabulous song. Um, and speaking of collaboration, so one of the Backstage Chats Foundation's major values is collaboration trumps competition. And um, you're quite a collaborator. The first thing that came to mind was recording with Big Frida Queen Diva, who's also <laughs> from New Orleans, and also with the Jam Band Galactic. Um, you played with the Revivalists the other night here at One-Eyed Jacks. Is there some kind of magical formula for a successful collaboration, or is this something that just kind of organically happens, and when it does, it's great, and then if it doesn't, it's like, oh, do we continue on, or you know what I'm saying? It's, there's, I mean, this is quite a diverse group of people. How do you work with it? Well, I'm just really lucky that I live in a city where you can open the cabinet and pull out a big Frida, a revivalist, and a galactic, <laughs> all in the same, you know, zip code. Um, and I think that, that that's part of, of being here, is that we, we're not New York, we're not L.A., and, so, and yet there's so much that's being created here, and we just see each other, um, especially when there's an artist like the three that I just mentioned that have success on a national or even international level, that are still really based here and about the city. Um, we just reach out to each other because uh, we're kind of family in a way. And we know that the city's reputation for music isn't going to change um, unless we stick together and do that. I think a lot of people um, look at the kind of like the Lil Wayne model, which is where you um, are able to claim New Orleans, but you don't actually live there or really interact with it or represent it that much. And to his credit, there is no industry here. You, If you're going to be successful as an artist you're going to LA and New York for your meetings. And so it's interesting that from a creative standpoint, however, <laughs> we're like, all right, I'll see you back home. And we get together and we get in the studio and we come up with these cool creative shows. And hopefully over the next, you know, 10 or 15 years, the industry will take notice and there'll be, you know, a major label will open an office here and maybe a major management company will open here or an you know, a booking agency or something. We, we have our, our boutique situations, don't get me wrong. But um, it does feel like it's in the best interest of the city as a tourism economy to keep the talent here mm -hmm. 
So that way people are forced to fly in to witness it. Mm -hmm. And there's almost this sort of invisible glass ceiling of like, well, are you going to play Frenchman seven nights a week? You know, like it's almost like it's embedded in the formula to keep you here. So that way the tourists will keep buying their tickets and not export you to other cities. And so that's the kind of thing that I'm interested in is like, how do we maintain the, the New Orleans aspect of it where we're engaging with the city, interacting with the city, where we are family, but we have international success. Well, and you know, that kind of reminds me of the uh, late 80s and early 90s with the grunge scene. I mean, they put Seattle on the map. And one of the things that uh, we used to talk a lot about in that was the fact that those bands all collaborated not just on stage, but supported each other and said, hey, tomorrow night, our friends are playing at this bar. Go check them out. And, you know, it was about uh, helping each other out. And and I think that we went through this huge phase where bands felt like, oh, I have to discredit that person or the big thing, throw in shade on somebody and everything. And I think that's the number one way to destroy a scene, especially when you're dealing with women who are trying to rise up in a typically male-dominated industry. For sure. I mean, to take it philosophical, (laughs) yeah, I did my little business spiel, but on the much deeper level is like, do you believe in the myth of scarcity? And that is the fear that would drive you to be so jealous of someone else's success that you wouldn't wish it for them. If, and, and we all fall into that. I'll open Instagram and see like so-and-so got mentioned by so-and-so cool blog. And subconsciously what that triggers in me is, oh, that means that I won't get that because they got that. And that is scarcity and it is a myth and it's definitely something that women are taught to believe. Like there's only so many men, there's only so many jobs, there's only so much happiness, there's only so much love available on earth. And that applies to any industry and any career. So if you can step back from that and instead believe in abundance, then the rising tide, what is it, rises all ships (laughs) was the phrase there. Yeah, it just is way more fun. It feels way better. It's like the slumber party where the math nerds, the jocks and the cheerleaders are all invited. That's much more fun. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I want to see that slumber party. Can I go? <laughs> yes, you're invited too. The podcast people are invited yay, too. Yay. Well, I have to say, um, Galactus bassist uh, Robert Mercurio spoke highly of you in Offbeat Magazine interview. And this is what he said to, so our listeners know. There's people that are good writers, but there's people who can tell a story in a way you've never heard it done before. And that's what makes somebody a really, really good writer. People sometimes recycle ideas, but with her, meaning boyfriend, it's always new ground broken. I also want to ask, I know that you studied at UCLA and creative writing, I believe was your major. Is that right? How did that affect how you approach writing and your style? 100% affected it. Um, Because it doesn't really matter what the medium is. If you're sitting around at dinner retelling the story of your day, writing a song, writing a short story or a play, the same rules sort of apply. Um, show, don't tell uh, <laughs> is a big one. Um, yeah, alliteration, um, symbolism, you know, all those like sort of nerdy buzzwords that you learn in ninth grade English. Um, I just happened to train in even longer. And I did that because I loved it. So it's not even like, you know, I, w- I went to school and I learned it. And so that's, that's why I'm good at it. It's like, no, that's just the thing that I really think I'm here to do because I want to do that. And I love it. And that's how I engage uh, with the world and, and, and with words specifically, like I'm always twisting them and finding ways to um, shape them into the way that I want them to be. 
Well, and, you know, I've, I've heard you say in past interviews that, oh, it makes me feel uncomfortable if people call me a musician because I don't play a musical instrument. Obviously, you're the vocalist, songwriter, you know, that's where a huge part of your strength is. Do you ever experience imposter syndrome? And if so, how would you give advice for other women to get over it? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Another thing for the people who are listening, you didn't see my my jaw slack open as I nodded enthusiastically, like, yes, I experience imposter syndrome. I experience it right now by being on this podcast. <laughs> like, why do they care what I have to say? Um Oh, yeah, I don't know how to how to combat it. That's like something I'll be fighting on my deathbed probably. Um, but it to me, it always comes back to disengaging from the belief that your work is providing evidence that you are worthy and that you deserve love because that's the trap that makes you feel like you're not good enough and you're not you're not really valid and that you're an imposter. If that work is being put out there with these um, strings attached and like that it's, it's an if then situation. Like if I write a great song, then I'm worthy of love. And so when that's attached to it, you're always wondering like, am I really good enough? Oh my gosh, they're going to realize I'm a fraud. It's not good enough. Is that good? Because there's something at stake. There's something lingering on the other side of it that can be taken away. And so if you, if you're able to let go of that and, realize that you are enough just as you are without ever taking pen to paper, then I think you realize that you, yeah, you're not an imposter at all. You're just a human being like the rest of us that deserves to breathe and smile and laugh and cry. Thank you for that positive note. I think we need more of that. So next question. First of all, we have something in common. I grew up in the Church of Christ as well. Oh, that's what this whole podcast could be about. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, I almost went down that rabbit hole. I had to really sit and think about the questions because we, I mean, the things that you say in your songs, I just, boom, I mean, hit home because, you know, the things that were indoctrinated into me through the church, and, and I have nothing bad to say about my experiences in the church with the exception of whoa, I mean, there were so many rules um, that it's like, wait a minute, did God not want us to have fun? I I really had a hard time struggling with it growing up, and it sounds like you had a lot of questions as well and obviously have gone your own way. It leads to my question, how does your current music and career affect your family ties? Yeah, well, um, all of my, all four of my grandparents have already passed away, and that is a huge coincidence <laughs> that um, has made it such that I haven't had to deal with as much friction as I certainly would have. Mm-hmm. Uh, my grandfather passed just before Jazz Fest last year. Um, and otherwise, you know, he, he didn't know it was an active secret. Um, it hadn't gained enough momentum to have to be quite as active of a secret from my two grandmothers. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that's a painful like duplicity, you know, especially cause I want to be able to feel proud of the things that I've done and I don't ever want to lie. Um, but there was times at the end there, you know, where it's like, why are you going to Tokyo? I'm like, well, it's, it's for my work. You know, I, I write songs, like I would try to be as honest as possible. It's for my work. I write songs. Um, but like the fact that I got flown to Tokyo to perform for Mark Jacobs is like, on the bullet list of like cool things I did in my life, you know, it's like in the top five. And then I couldn't like fully share that with him. It was really sad because then he would want to hear it and see it. And he would inevitably be hurt by it. As far as like the, you know, the patriarchs and the matriarchs 
I'm not having to deal with that as much anymore. Now it's more like aunts and more extended family that is hip to it because of where social media is. And I don't really engage. I don't really engage with them. I don't get on Facebook. I don't look at that. I let, if, if someone reaches out to me and I should see it, then someone sends me the screenshot and I get in touch, but I don't engage with it. It's like a scary place for me. (laughs) And I think that's like the main um, frontier where those family members who would be hurt by my work um, are engaging with it and seeing it. Mm -hmm. But I think that the most interesting twist of all of this is my own, is being confronted with my own hypocrisy because I, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here like you're, I don't like you because you're judgmental, just assuming that how they're going to feel about my work. That's not really my business. I don't know that. And I just, I'll always remember like kind of hushedly talking about it with my two younger cousins um, and then saying how it was, you know, it was heavy. It was Christmas time and I was upset that I was having to hide and I kind of lead this double life. And, you know, cause I was just like, I just don't think they'll get it. And my Fox news watching uncle who was in the corner and I didn't realize he could hear me. He said, I get it. And I was like, you know I was like okay yeah I actually I'm the judgmental bitch in this situation for just like not even giving you the chance to see me and see this and react to it and you know I I think that's because there's so much uh scar tissue from the way that I was brought up in the church Mm -hmm. and it's not like any single individual person hurt me it was the institution that hurt me and so to apply that pain that I felt from the institution to an individual, like, oh, you're my great uncle and you're not going to get this. and da, 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 da. Well, that's not a great, fair, loving, open way to be. So it's, it's caused me to challenge that. Like, be, you know, believe it or not, it's opened my heart so much more to my upbringing. It's actually not this like balled up fist, red faced anger so much as like, oh, I need to check myself again. I'm not sitting over here like I'm Buddha or something, right. you know, like I've, I've found the path to enlightenment. Y'all are wrong. Pointing my fingers, wagging it at him. It's like, no, no, that's not, that's not the answer. Well, and you brought it, you brought up Buddha and in a number of interviews, I've seen the Buddhist references come up. Do you feel like you identify with the Buddhist religion or is it just something that is more supportive of your, where you're looking spiritually? I, I don't, I'm not uh, educated enough to, say that I would identify that way. And I don't identify with any like singular institutionalized mode of thinking Mm -hmm. for sure. But, um, everything I've heard from it, I'm like, right on. (laughs) It it touches, it touches you. Yeah. Well, just like if you actually distill the actual words and teaching of Jesus, I'm still like right on. Well, and you're walking in your own truth. Yeah. Speaking of the show, And walking in your truth. For those of you who have not seen Boyfriend perform, uh, her musical roots definitely come forward. It is a burlesque style musical extravaganza where uh, cone bras, tampon throwing, and the occasional food fight break out, like we said before. And in moving forward and touring, because you're no longer teaching school, how do you bring everybody together to get on the road with this show? How does that happen? <laughs> Not easily. Um, it's a production, and because of that, uh, I don't do the more typical like road warrior strategy that an up-and-coming band would do, where I just grind it out for months on the road. 
uh, you know, we have G-strings to wash and you can't put sequins in a laundromat. Uh, so because of that, we've taken a, a slightly different strategy um, where we only play like the top 15 markets that are interacting with my brand, my music, my Instagram, whatever modes of being I'm putting myself out there. If that city's interacting with it, we'll go there. But I'm not just going to go play a city and maybe, you know, 15 people show up the way a typical band would because that that does work because there's 15 people there at the first show, there's 30 at the next one, you know, and you hit them multiple times. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's just so much physical work that goes into our show with the dancers and the costumes and setting it all up that um, we've taken a different method. Like in New Orleans, I only play New Year's Eve, Jazz Fest. Um, I do a Halloween show at Preservation Hall, but I, I kind of keep it, well, the an area where I think scarcity is good. <laughs> to, to bring, yeah, I believe in scarcity when it comes to my show and trying to keep them, keep them wanting it. And don't oversaturate the market. Exactly. And I think it's a little different for me because the show is so visual. Um, it's easier to feel like you've got it. You've, you've, seen, you've been there, done that. Like you might go see Dave Matthews, you know, three times in one year and hear the same 45 minutes of music in a slightly rearranged order. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't, that doesn't bother you the way that it might to come see my show. And it's like, oh, she's using the umbrellas still. <laughs> You know, it's it's like, that's a little bit of an unfair thing, I think, but I put it on myself by making my show visual. It's easier to remember, like, something as having seen it before. Right. I I don't think there's as much of a repeat culture um, for musicals, for instance, unless you're, like, somewhat fanatic. And so I like to keep people, you know, waiting. Well, this kind of leads into our first fan question, and oh my gosh, we've been We've been having such a good interview. I don't have too much time to ask of that many. But I do have Jen from Detroit who asks, what are your summer tour plans? <laughs> and will you be coming to Detroit or the Midwest? Uh, I, do, I don't know yet. I don't know. I hope so because I really loved playing Detroit. It's been a few years now. But hopefully, I'll okay. say. All right. So there you go, Jen. Um, also, we had Lindsay from Washington, D.C. who wants to know, what was your favorite performance at Jazz Fest this year or any past year? Ooh, well, this year, you know, we're only, we're only one weekend in, but I'd have to say Alanis Morissette. I had never, as an adult, um, gotten to, like, see her live and, and witness that. And I'm like, if she starts a religion, I'm signing up. <laughs> I'm with you. And just to be belting my lungs out, uh, with my sister, who, you know, I actually posted a video that same day of us dancing to her music from 1996 um, to be there with her. And my mom was behind us videoing us, you know, 20 something years later. It was like, I, I feel so wistful for like 1995, 1996 when that music first came out. But to have that sort of parallel, I realized like, oh, I'm going to feel wistful for this now. But I have the adult wisdom to recognize that it's passing by me right now that I didn't have when I was a child. And so the seeing that show was like so much more than a great show. It was like an actual like milestone type of a moment. Well, we live for those. I mean, that's what makes it all worth it, right? Yes, indeed. Absolutely. Well, um, so for your shows, you do have a you have a whole next week of Jazz Fest going on. So I know you have more shows going on. And I was really, really afraid you might run out of razors. Yay! Um, I would not want you to be on stage with hairy armpits and not have a razor handy because 
again, for those who want to see the show, you will see an awesome demonstration of armpit shaving going on. And now we have rainbow ones that we can choose from. You're so beautiful colors. Thank you. I actually only shave my armpits on stage. So at any given point, you can tell how recently I've been on tour by the the length of my armpit hair. (laughs) It's kind of like a groundhog situation. (laughs) Or the rings on a tree. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Thank you. This is wonderful. You're so welcome. Again, you know, I wouldn't want you to run out. And I just want to say thank you for taking time out, especially during this crazy time of Jazz Fest here in New Orleans, um, and speaking with the podcast and supporting women in music. I mean, our big thing is amplifying the voices and careers of women in music and a lot of what we do, not just through the podcast, but also in grants and scholarships for young girls going to sound camps with soundgirls.org and Girls Rock Austin, which does all kinds of musicians. And uh, so we really appreciate that you support that. And I hope that you're willing to come back and talk to us again soon. I'd be crazy not to. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Well, everybody, that is pretty much a wrap for today's podcast with Backstage Chats with Women in Music. I'm your host, Thea Wood. I would like to give a special shout out to the Ritz-Carlton New Orleans for hosting us today in their very swanky wine room. And uh, please join us for our next episodes. And until then, remember, we love these ladies. Why? Because they teach us to be dreamers, to be rule breakers, and to unleash our inner rock star. Take care, y'all. Hit the subscribe button and never miss an episode of Backstage Chats with Women in Music. This podcast is a production of the Backstage Chats Foundation, a nonprofit that is on a mission to eliminate gender disparity in the music industry by amplifying the voices and careers of women in music. You can make a difference by donating to the cause. Visit backstagechats.com and click the donate button today. This episode was produced by Alison Holland.